Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, today with a message found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Forgiveness for Offenders. This matter of forgiveness, that's very hard. And here, while I admit it's hard to do, I mean hard in another sense. So let me give you two examples. The first is a historic one, and the second is a very common contemporary one. In around AD 250, a great persecution had arisen against the church, and many Christian leaders were martyred, and others were beaten, and still others suffered severe financial loss. They lost their property as all they had was confiscated. But these men and women remain true to Christ, choosing death and harm rather than denying their Lord. But not everyone. Some, either in cowardice or in lack of faith, made the demanded sacrifice to Caesar and then denied their faith. And then by 313, Constantine had issued the Edict of Toleration, and Christians were protected from this kind of persecution going forward. Many of those who had denied their faith in persecution, now that it was over, wanted to come back to the church and to be included among the saints. And the ones who remained faithful had suffered the death of family members or had sustained personal lifetime injuries. Others were destitute because of it. Those wanting back in had suffered no losses at all. How do you forgive them? What do you say? I mean, this question in a number of churches caused a great schism. In the end, those who had cooler heads prevailed and allowed people back if they showed genuine signs of repentance. However, those people were kept from leadership. (laughs) I hope you see it's far more difficult to forgive sinners than we might have thought. Here's my second illustration. A woman lives with an abusive husband who does great harm. She's supposed to forgive him. Well, yeah, she is, but exactly what does it mean? Is she supposed to take her chances and allow him to continue to abuse her until maybe one day he's killed her? Is that what forgiveness means? Do you see, it's a far more difficult question than you might have imagined. Well, Matthew 18, it's all about mercy and forgiveness and the marvelous and boundless grace of God. Jesus is teaching and has already demanded that his followers must remain humble, always remembering that the clamor for status is not fitting for a child of God. Then he told the parable of the lost sheep, portraying a gracious God who spares no effort to find his lost and straying sheep, finding the lost and bringing them back. And then he gives the future church some very important tools to to know how to handle sin. Sin has to be confronted, and it might lead to excommunication if the person in question simply refuses to repent. But excommunication is the final step. One-on-one, gracious pointing out of sin is what's called for. Jesus outlines a procedure that will bring the sensitive heart to the point of genuine repentance and then promises not only the forgiveness of God, but also the forgiveness of the local church. But at least for the disciples, this leads to some unanswered questions. And as was often the case, Peter takes the lead. So we start to read Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, it's been pointed out that some rabbis in that day required their students to forgive an offender only three times. That is, after three offenses of the same variety, time to move on. Day of forgiveness is done. 
Forgiveness has been offered, but clearly the offender isn't sincere. So forgiveness is withdrawn from a repeat offender. Now, if you will allow me, it's very easy in which to come to that conclusion. Three strikes, you're out. I've been gracious, but you are clearly taking advantage of my gracious spirit. There has to be limits to forgiveness. If there isn't, well, you know, you just become a doormat. And furthermore, if you just go on forgiving, won't you give the wrong impression that the offender just keeps on sinning, then just keeps on saying sorry, then just keeps on sinning again? And doesn't all of that just make a mockery out of forgiveness? Think of the man who commits adultery. He's confronted. He's so sorry. He repents. He even writes the woman in question a letter. He breaks off the affair. Then he, when no one is watching, goes right back to his adultery. And then when he's caught a second time, he confesses again. And he does what he's asked for. He confesses, but then he does it again. Are there limits to this? There must be. And so when Peter moves beyond the popular rabbinic tradition of three strikes and you're out and extends that to seven strikes and you're out, well, he is being at the very least gracious. But Jesus says that's not enough. 70 times seven, which, as you know, is 490 times. And of course, you know, Jesus isn't arguing for 490 strikes and then you're out. It's merely a figure of speech. It gives the impression that forgiveness must always be extended. And that leads to a question. What if the person shows no remorse? Well, Jesus has already answered that, hasn't he? He has said, if the sinning person refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. Treat that person as an outsider. It seems to me then that there must be a difference between being gracious to someone or extending complete forgiveness and restoring someone to full fellowship. And you have to remember that Peter and Jesus are talking about restoring a sinner back into the fellowship of believers. The forgiveness that is offered is the forgiveness offered by the local church. But it is also the forgiveness that an offended brother might offer to someone who offended him or her. But here's where it gets complicated. What if the person's not sorry? What if the person in question is not a Christian? Well, in my experience, it's far easier to forgive a non-Christian. What if it's a Christian whose sins has hurt us in a way in which we can't recover? You know, for instance, a man who's in a church, he's a financial investor. In reality, he's a crook. He takes money from Christians. He promises to invest it. Then he takes off and runs. I know people who have lost a lifetime of savings that way. What then if that person comes and repents, but he has no money to repay? What then? Does forgiveness mean that we don't hand that person over to the police? (laughs) You see, we can think of hundreds of scenarios, and the more we think of them, the more dangerous this whole thing of forgiveness seems to us. For if we advertise that we'll forgive everyone of everything, aren't we just sitting ducks? I mean, come to think of it, Peter's seven times seems very generous. I'd have liked it if Jesus had said, okay then, seven strikes and you're out, but he didn't, did he? And so Jesus tells a parable, and I'm reading here Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Ah, You hardly need a parable to know what that means. There's a day coming when all the dead will rise and they will stand before the judge of all the earth. The time will surely come when he who is earth's rightful king will settle accounts with every single man and woman. And it is right here that all of us who think about those who have sinned against us and wonder how often we should forgive them, well, we might now begin to feel uncomfortable. I mean, come on. Are you afraid to go there? Did you notice how much easier it is to talk about the sins that others have committed against us rather than to speak about our own sins? Have you ever noticed how myopic all of our conversation about sins tend to be? I remember once reading a conversation that occurred in a theology class about whether or not we are justified in defending ourselves if someone breaks into our homes. The discussion went on for quite some time, and then one woman said, Why is it that we always define ourselves as the heroes or the innocent victims? When do we ever have a conversation about the sins that we have committed against others and ultimately against God? That's exactly what Jesus was saying in this parable. Yeah, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a great king who calls us to give an account for our sinning. Are you ready to discuss that? Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is using this ministry to impact so many lives across this country. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Canadians and around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. We're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. So make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you in your spiritual journey. So many of our Bible resources are available to you for free. To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When the king was settling accounts, he came to one who owed him 10,000 talents. And, you know, you can read that and you might not see what's going on. So the real question to ask now is, how much is that? Well, a talent, as most of us know, was a unit of money at the time of Jesus. So one talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. 
And here is where it gets really interesting. The average laborer in Palestine would earn one denarius a day. No, I didn't say he would save that much. That was his daily wage. And so imagine you combine the wages of a working life. Well, I can say this, in 20 years of working, you would earn one talent. So 10,000 talents that are described here, it would take you 200,000 years to earn that. Now, we might want to stop here and say, hey, Jesus, yeah, that just seems silly. How can one king's servant owe the king 10,000 talents? He's a servant, for heaven's sakes. He might not even have his own money. It seems the story is too fantastic to be believable. But before you go there, let's consider the ancient world. You know, unlike the horrifying experience of African slaves in America, ancient peoples most often became slaves in different ways. And some became that way because of warfare. Some people were slaves for a given period of time in which they worked to pay off a debt. But there were actually some people who willingly became slaves and for all manner of reasons. And we do know that in the ancient world, some slaves were great philosophers. Others were very highly skilled physicians or also in a number of other areas. Some slaves were entrusted with the running of an entire household for people who were obscenely rich. And you might remember Jesus' parable of the unrighteous manager it was found in Luke 16. At one point in time, this unrighteous manager becomes exposed. He is now terrified he's going to have to give an account. And that might be just such a scenario that Jesus is describing here. We might imagine a king with billions, trillions under his care. And this servant has been taking advantage of these resources. And now his debt is so large, he can no longer juggle the books anymore. His number is up. Time to face the consequences for squandering huge amounts of money. And many of us reading this still haven't recognized ourselves yet, have we? Yeah, we say, there are all sorts of crooked politicians out there, that's for sure. You know, politicians who abuse public money or scoundrels like Bernie Madoff. Remember, he fleeced his investors on a giant Ponzi scheme until he could no longer keep his crooked dealings hidden. We say, good riddance to folks like that. But we're missing something of the parable. And so I think it's necessary to come to terms with our own sin, our indebtedness before God. We start with a basic question. Just how sinful do you think sin is? Let's say your neighbor's dog barks all night. One day you shoot the dog. How sinful is that? Well, in our society, you might make the local news. That's bad. Okay, let's up the ante. Let's say you don't shoot the neighbor's dog at all. You shoot the neighbor's daughter. Ah, that's a great deal more sinful. Well, that's true, but because we know that a human being has more value than an animal. Now, do you remember what King David said? After he had sinned, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then, of course, he had put her husband to death. Just how sinful was that? Listen to Psalm 51, verse 4. David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, now think this through. How sinful is that? We've recognized that a sin against a human is greater than a sin against an animal. Now, how great is a sin that's committed against God? Answer, it's infinite. It's committed against infinite holiness. When the great king settles accounts with his servants in the end of the day, what will be the sum of the debt of every sinner? Listen, the debt against God, when you see it in the final day, is going to stagger you. The weight of it will crash on your shoulders. It will seem that you can't breathe. And so this parable is incredibly real to life. Keep reading. 
verses 27 and 28. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, this, if you haven't recognized it, that's the picture of your conversion. We've been talking about mercy and grace and forgiveness after three strikes and seven strikes and 490 strikes. Maybe you've never seen what happened on that day when you knelt before God. By the way, the idea that perhaps the king would have patience to let the servant find a way of repaying him, that was ludicrous. The servant is lying to himself, and we are too, if, if we imagine that if only we do enough good deeds, it'll outweigh our bad ones, or if only I can be better than most, if only I can do appropriate penance, I'm going to have it all squared up with God. Well, that idea is laughable. In reality, the servant would have been utterly condemned for even suggesting that he could pay this back. But then the words out of pity, well, they should strike us hard. Do you want to know if you are saved? how you came to be saved? It came to be because God had pity on you. He had compassion on you. You had sinned so deeply and you had no recourse out of pity. The word aphemi means to forgive, to cancel out a debt, to say of a debt, it is completely rescinded. It's gone. And that's what the church preaches. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's God's pity. But of course, that's not the end of the story. The man who had been forgiven, when he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, treated him very differently. Now, the way some tell this story, you know, this person owed him mere chump change. Well, not really. We've made the point that for the average worker, one denarius equals one day's wage. And so this person might earn about, you know, 100 denarii in about a third of a year. Again, that's what they would earn. That's not what they would save. It would take a few years to save up that kind of money. It's a lot of money. So we might ask, how has this debt been incurred? Well, we're not told, but however it came to be, it was a significant debt. I think this is Jesus' way of acknowledging that the sins that others might commit against us are a no small thing, at least not from our perspective. And here I think is the point. If you have received God's forgiveness, are you then obligated to forgive all sins against yourself? And here there's a clear and unequivocal answer. Yes, God demands you who have sinned more than anyone can sin against you that you are now in an obligatory role. You are required by your king to forgive the sins of others. One point needs to be added. Our translation simply says he should be handed over to the jailer until he had paid the debt, but the text can also read he should be tortured or tormented until he paid the debt. Do you want to know why hell is of an endless duration? It is so because even eternity itself won't be enough time to pay the enormity of your sin debt against infinite holiness. So let's get back to those Christians who had denied Jesus in the early church when persecution arose. Is that a great sin? Oh, you have no idea how great the sin is. But if they plead for mercy, will not their king have compassion? Well, what about that abused woman? Should she subject herself to further abuse? And the answer is no. We need to protect her. That's right. That's proper. But if her husband earnestly repents, well, there may or may not be room for them to live together again. That that depends on a number of factors. I, I can't discuss those here. 
But let me say this. Forgiveness is offered freely. What else can we do? Again, please remember the context. What should the church do when someone sins habitually? Well, we should demand that that person produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what it means to insist on holiness. Someone might be put into an accountability group or something like that, but there's a lesson. You can't sin so greatly that if you truly confess your sin from the heart, that a merciful and gracious and loving God will not take pity on you. And here's another lesson. If Jesus said that whatever we loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven, it must mean that even if we struggle with the same sin over and over again, our Heavenly Father will forgive us. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. Let's be that as well. John, this has been a terrific series, and uh, I really love the title, actually, The Mysteries of Compassion, and I think it's something that people really need to consider uh, how they display and uh, and how they project compassion in their lives to others. But, but coming back to the end uh, message here on forgiveness, forgiveness, it, it really isn't something that's optional, is it? You know, it's, it's important to remind ourselves of that very point. It, it's never optional. It's... <laughs> You know, Ben, it's it's so hard to do. I mean, I know that. I, I've sometimes wondered. I come to the Lord on a number of occasions and say, you know, God, I, I, I'm not good at this. And what does that mean? But I know that the Lord is coming to me and saying, yes, but I demand it of you. And um, I think all of us who are in Christ, who have been forgiven so much, recognize once you've been forgiven that much, it has placed on each one of us an obligation of compassion and of humility and of love for people who, in our estimation, don't deserve it. And, you know, I, I would guess that once we've experienced a profound forgiveness from someone, it should allow us to understand the importance of forgiving others in our lives. Yeah, that's that's the thing. And I am continually reminded that I'm not the um, the innocent victim of others, that I am actually filled with my own sin and for that reason, this showing of compassion really does showcase that we know the God who has forgiven us. Failure to do that is to simply cut ourselves off from grace. We want to be in the center of grace. We want to make forgiveness a part of what we are. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us for this series, The Mysteries of Compassion. And remember to join us again next week as we continue in the study of the Word of God right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The past number of years, Back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience, a journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, discovering first-hand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience, and we want you to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and experience events and activities that will include Laugh Against Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Plan to attend. Take advantage of having plenty of notice and register today. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.